Hey, so we're in a series where we are talking about Christmas. But we're talking about Christmas from the perspective of something that we read in the book of Revelation. At the end of the Bible, God says this really interesting thing. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, we read this. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. One of the interesting things is that at the end of the Bible, there's this passage where God says, I'm going to start over. I'm going to make everything new. And if I'm going to make everything new, that means the old stuff has to go. And that's the challenge. That's the confrontation that we have to deal with, the knowledge that all of the stuff that we've grown accustomed to, all of the stuff that we fall in love with, all of the stuff that we're addicted to down here, one of these days, God's going to be like, nope, we're starting over. We're rebooting the whole thing, making everything new. And one of the biggest promises that we look forward to is this promise that God is going to make everything new. But that means we have to be the kind of people who are willing to accept the new even when we're, we're tempted to hang on to the old. And so last week I introduced this whole concept with uh, the reminder that this is the way God has always worked. God has always worked on this same basic principle, the principle that a new thing is coming and the old things are going. When he met Abraham, he said, Abraham, guess what? I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing. And Abraham goes, cool. And God says, but here's the deal. You have to go to a new place a place I will lead you. And then the journey of Abraham is one new thing after another, one new challenge after another. And God says, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing. But there's another new thing. I'm going to give you a baby. This baby's going to come from your own wife, even though she's like 90. And God says, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing. And here's another new thing. And, and every time we see Abraham, God is doing some new thing in his life, but the promise is staying the same. And we saw that repeatedly. It happens in Noah. Excuse me, it happens when Moses is taking the people out of Egypt. God says to Moses and the people, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing, but you have to leave Egypt behind. And then they're in the wilderness and they're getting free food every single day and God leads them into the promised land. He says, listen, it's flowing with milk and honey. That's a great new thing, but you have to leave the everyday free food, magic food from heaven behind. I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing, but there's a new thing I'm going to do. And so last week I encouraged you to get, get this idea that there is a promise that God has given that has been unchanged from the earliest days of his interactions with human beings. Even though it comes in a different form, you can trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, where God is saying, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing. You can trace the promise all the way back, but everything else around it always changes. Everything else around it is always regularly being made new. God does this time and time again. I'm going to keep the promise together, but I'm going to do everything else new. And so last week we talked about Mary. And when she heard the message from the angel telling her that she was going to be pregnant, even though she'd never been with a man, and that her baby was going to become the savior of the world, man, that would have freaked anyone out. It would have made a lot of people ask questions. But Mary just simply says, may it be to me as you have said. And so I challenged you as we begin this Christmas season, and I'm challenging myself too, to embrace this Mary attitude. I put it in this phrase last week. It goes like this. I will hold on to the promise as I welcome the changes. Life is filled with changes. And we have to be the kind of people that Mary was who said, I will hold on to this promise that God is giving to me, even though I am in the midst of all these changes. In fact, I welcome all these changes because God's promise is so solid. I can enter into the new thing with that as my firm ground. So I told you last week that that story of Mary really is kind of the symbolic story of everything that happens in the Christmas story we're familiar with. The, the challenge of Christmas, as I said last week, the challenge of Christmas is that God is doing a brand new thing, which is great, He's bringing himself into the world. We, before Christmas, we had no idea that God was more than just one. 
Now we know that God is somehow triune, Trinity. We don't know how it works. We can't explain it. We just know Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all of them somehow God. But before Christmas, we didn't have a clue that was a thing. And so we just knew that there was a God. And now all of a sudden, God is somehow coming to earth too. And he's now a baby also. How is this? We had no idea. All of that stuff was brand new. In fact, literally everything about the Christmas story that you and I think of as old, we think of the story of the wise men as an old story. We think of the story of the shepherds and the angels as an old story. But every one of those stories was tragically new when it first happened. And I I use that word carefully. It was a tragic experience for every one of these people to go through what they went through. And we say, oh no, it's such a quaint little story. But every aspect of it was tragic and challenging. And every moment along the way, someone had to say, I'm just going to go along with this new thing that God is doing. So I want to challenge us to have that same kind of openness. But as you think back to the story of Mary, the one question we didn't deal with last week is how will the rest of the world receive her? Sure, it's one thing for an angel to say, this is what's going to happen, and for you to say, okay, I'm going to let it happen. It's another thing entirely for the rest of the world to go along with it. It's another thing entirely for the people in your family, the people who are around you, the people who who claim to love you, if they're going to go along with this new thing that's going on in your life. Maybe you've experienced that before where some new thing happened in your life and the people around you faded away because the the friend that they had in you before, they they were friends with the old version of you and now the new version of you is different and they're not going to go with you. I imagine Mary is worried about that same thing. Are her parents going to kick her out of the house? Is Joseph, her, her fiancé, is he still going to marry her? What's going to happen? We learned from the story last week, we didn't actually pay attention to it, but it's in the Luke passage, that Mary left her home and went to stay with Elizabeth, her cousin, for like six months. Is that because her parents kicked her out of the home? I don't know. But she leaves to stay with Elizabeth, her cousin, for six months. Maybe just to avoid all the disgrace of her hometown? I don't know. But the biggest question she would have had is, what about Joseph? What about my fiancé? Is he still going to love me? And so we pick up that story today in Matthew chapter 1. We pick it up, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 is where it starts. It says this, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pause there for just a moment because there are two things that I want to help you understand. First of all, let's talk about engagement in the ancient world. You notice how it said she was pledged to be married. That means she took a pledge to be married to Joseph. That means she made a promise to be married to Joseph. Are you getting where I'm going with this? She made, let's just say it, a vow to be married to Joseph. Because in the ancient world, this is how it worked. Vow, then preparation, then moving in together, then consummation. That's how the ancient world worked. Marriage was the entire process. And so the vow, the ceremony, happened at the beginning. There was this ceremony, there was this pledge, there was this vow, somehow it was taken. And so when when it says that Mary was pledged to Joseph, that is the same thing as when you or someone else you know stood on a stage in front of a pastor or priest and they gave their vows to each other that they would be married to each other. It's the same thing. In the ancient world, the ceremony came first. Then after the ceremony, there was a long period of preparation where Joseph the groom would have to prepare his house for the arrival of this new uh, person in his life. Then at the end of the preparation, Mary would be brought to Joseph, and then she would live with Joseph as his wife, and they would consummate the marriage. These days, we do the entire thing exactly in the backwards order, you know? These days, we consummate, then we live with each other, then we prepare for marriage, and then we get married with vows. It's in exactly the opposite order. But back then, it was like this. Ceremony, preparation, move in, and consummate. That's how it worked. But that means 
That means Mary was not engaged to Joseph the way you and I think of engagement. That means Mary was already his wife, but they weren't living together yet. And that is actually the way people thought about it back then. In fact, if you look in verse 2, which we will in just a moment, Joseph is called her husband. He's not called her fiancé. It's because the pledge was the marriage. Mary was married to Joseph. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, Mary was married to Joseph. Mary was Joseph's wife. They weren't living together. She was found to be pregnant. Now, I really wonder what's going on in Joseph's mind at that moment. Because, see, the text tells us that she was found to be pregnant with the Holy Spirit's child. She was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Let's just be clear with each other. The by the Holy Spirit is not something you can find. She was found to be pregnant, and she said it was from the Holy Spirit. And so here's Joseph. He's got his wife. She's over there living with her family. He's getting the house ready. He's, he's all excited about the fact that he's going to have his, his new bride coming in as soon as he gets the house ready, as soon as he gets his financial affairs in order. And now he finds out that Mary's pregnant. And she's telling him the story that, oh, it's an angel that came and uh, visited me. And, and, oh, the baby is the Holy Spirit. It's a miraculous baby from God. And Joseph is like, right, sure. Sure, an angel visited you, and the Holy Spirit just made this happen. Right. See, I'm convinced that Joseph was a guy who lived the way all the rest of us would live. The life that says, that's not the way things work. That's not the way things happen. That's not what's been done before. That's not how it's operated. You are making something up that is brand new. I'm not going to go with that. And that whole thing, what's going on in Joseph's mind, I cannot imagine the sort of turmoil that would happen there. The sense of betrayal, the sense of confusion. And so what is Joseph planning to do? Take a look at verse 19 and we see his plan. It says this, verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So here's Joseph. He doesn't want to do anything that would hurt Mary because he loves her too much, but he's going to do something because he's a guy who obeys the law. Now, the actual text, the original language behind it says that Joseph is a righteous man, which means that he's a guy who always does what's right. He's not a guy who just does good things. He always does what's right, and he understands God's law. So now, I want to help you understand God's law because, see, God had actually given laws about this exact situation. Mary is his wife, and now she's pregnant, okay? God gave rules about that exact situation. Let me show you. The first one is going to come from uh, Deuteronomy, I believe. Let's put it up there. Uh, Leviticus is our first one. Okay. In, the, in Leviticus 20.10, it says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Now, Mary is not giving up the name of the father of this child, uh, according to Joseph. She's claiming it's from the Holy Spirit and from some angel. But Joseph's like, well, I don't have the name of the actual guy who got her pregnant. And so as a result, I know Leviticus 20.10 applies to it. And someone's got to die, the adulteress and the adulterer. But if we can't find the adulterer, we still might have to kill the adulteress are to be put to death. Keep going. In in Deuteronomy, we now find this one. Deuteronomy 22, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. There's this rule that says, if a woman is out in the wilderness and a man sleeps with her, uh, then you don't blame the woman because if she had yelled, then no one would have been able to save her. 
And so you never blame the woman if there's a circumstance where we don't know if she was raped or not. Never blame the woman. But if that situation doesn't apply, if they're in a town and she could have yelled and someone could have heard, she could have declared it to be rape. If she didn't, then she's guilty and both of them should be killed. This is called an adulterous situation. Ordinarily, never blame the woman. But Joseph's like, Mary's been living in this town the whole time. She hasn't been anywhere else. And she, let's be clear with one other thing. Notice also that all of these passages so far are talking about a a person who's pledged to be married to someone else or a person who is a wife. That's the context we're looking at. One more passage, Deuteronomy 24 has this one. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and then the passage continues with, can he ever marry her again in the future? And the answer is no. If he divorces her, can he ever marry her again? No. After she's with some other guy. That's the way the rest of the passage goes. But the introductory part of the passage is, if he marries her, finds something indecent about her, he can give her a certificate and they can be divorced. In other words, God has given Moses, excuse Moses, he's, I've, this, I've gotten Moses' name wrong twice. God has given Joseph actual instructions for how to deal with the exact situation he's in. And so Joseph, a guy who knows God's law, a guy who keeps God's law, a guy who has regularly kept God's law, now has a dilemma. And he has three choices in front of him. Choice number one, option number one. He could bring Mary to the leaders of the town to be stoned. That's option number one. He could bring her to the leaders of the town to have her stoned because she was in a town, a woman pledged to be married, technically a wife, and she's now pregnant. And even though they can't find the father of the baby, well, she's at least qualified for stoning based on those things. Option number one, kill her. That's the first one. Option number two, Joseph could divorce her quickly and quietly and get out of there because he's married to her. He's now found something indecent about her. He could give her a certificate of divorce and it would be done. But here's the other thing. If he does it just right, if he does it quickly enough, if he does it quietly enough, then maybe people will think that he divorced her before she got pregnant Because if he divorces her before she got pregnant, then her pregnancy didn't happen while she was a wife, and therefore the adultery wouldn't require her to be killed. And so he could save Mary's life by divorcing her before people find out that she's pregnant. Because if he gets everything done just right, then you can, you can claim, oh no, she was technically not pledged to be married to a man when this happened. And it wasn't punished by death if she was not pledged to be married to a man. If she's no one's wife, then it doesn't technically qualify as adultery. And so Joseph's like, I could save Mary's life by divorcing her now. But there's another option. The third option is he could go ahead with the marriage. He could marry Mary now and simply absorb all of her disgrace onto himself. Because, see, here's the thing. If he goes through with the marriage, everybody's going to assume one of two things because they know the timing of when she's pregnant and all that stuff. If he goes through with the marriage, then some people in the town are going to be like, that Joseph guy, man, he was he was pledged to be married to her. The house wasn't ready yet, and he just couldn't wait. He slept with her beforehand, got her pregnant, and the guy just doesn't have any patience. He's doing things wrong. He's, in, he's just an inappropriate man to have consummated the marriage as soon as he did. 
They wouldn't blame him for adultery. It wouldn't be punishable by death because he was the one who was pledged to be married to her. It wouldn't be punishable by death, but it would be considered by everyone else as kind of just disgraceful. He didn't follow the proper protocols. He didn't operate according to the the timing. But you'll notice they will all blame him. Or option number two, they know it's not Joseph's baby. And that's even worse for Joseph. Because if they know it's not Joseph's baby, now they are judging Joseph. And they're like, oh, Joseph, he's still with that woman, that wicked, evil, adulterous woman. He continued to marry her. He's doing all kinds of things that would be disdainful by the town around him, by the people around him, by those folks who he might want to build a building for. Remember, Joseph's a carpenter. He's got work that depends on other people hiring him. And if they find out that he's disreputable in this town, he might lose his business. He could face all kinds of disdain. And for, for everybody to be like, Mary should be killed, but Joseph married her instead. This isn't Joseph's baby, but he is raising it as his own. That's not a noble thing for people back then. For you and me today, it might be noble. But for Joseph back then, that was not noble. For Joseph back then, that was him absorbing the disgrace of everyone around him. Absorbing the disgrace of Mary as his own. And just picture where Joseph's mind would be at that moment in time. What he's thinking. He could be thinking, God, this isn't the way you work. Man, I've heard your words time and time again through my life. God, I know your words and you've never said anything like this. You've never indicated anything like this. You haven't. God, I know your words, and you've never said something like this. And and God, I know your ways, and you've never done anything like this. And by the way, God, why should I have to pay for her indecency? Why should I have to pay for her disgrace? Why should I absorb her sin on me? God, you've never done that before. You've never required one person to pay for the sin of another person. That's not like you. And so an angel comes and talks to Joseph as well. We read this in verse 20. It says, but after he had considered this. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Why would he be afraid? He'd be afraid of the judgment of God for not obeying God and killing her. He'd be afraid of the judgment of the people around him. But the angel says, don't be afraid. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. There are two things the angel says to Joseph by way of encouragement to Joseph. The first one is this Mary is still a virgin. This is a miracle. Mary is still a virgin. This is a miracle. This isn't, this isn't some normal thing that has happened before. Joseph, all of your preconceived ideas about the way the world works, breaking it down right now. This is new. This is different. I know through all of history and I know through all of humankind, the way it has always worked is if your fiance gets pregnant before you get married, the child is either yours or you should get rid of the woman. That's the way it has always worked. And Joseph knows it isn't his baby, but the angel says, times are different. This is new. This is a miracle thing that God is doing. Joseph, that's the first thing. But there's a second thing the angel said to Joseph, which is utterly fascinating to me too. He said, you will name him Jesus. Jesus is a common name. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. The Hebrew name Yeshua, when it becomes Greek, it's pronounced Yesus. When it then gets transformed through the ages of history, the ye at the beginning of the word turns into a j, and we then say Jesus. So Jesus is the modern version of the Greek version of the Hebrew word Joshua, which means... He will save his people from their sins. 
That's weird. The baby will save people from their sins. Listen, for you and me, we've heard the Christmas story so much, this just kind of makes sense to us. Yeah, Jesus is the Savior. How does he save people? He saves us from our sins. He brings us forgiveness. He brings us cleansing. He gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can live a future life without so much worry about sin because the Holy Spirit's going to help us have the power to conquer sin. We might still fail, but we're still going to be saved from our sins. It makes perfect sense to people who've been in churches their whole life or, or understand the message of Jesus. It makes perfect sense, but it wouldn't have made sense to Joseph because, see, for Joseph, the idea of being saved and the idea of sin were incompatible. Sin was the thing that gets you destroyed. Saving is the thing that God does for those people who are righteous. In fact, let me show you a passage in Ezekiel. This is amazing. This is from Ezekiel. Joseph would have known something like it because passages like this are all over in the Old Testament. God is making a promise of the future. He says, I will save my flock. Sounds like something Jesus might say, right? I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. That's what saving means. I'm going to take my sheep away from the place of danger. I will save my flock. They'll no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. God says, I'm going to take my sheep away from the place of plunder, and then I'm going to judge I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to judge between sheep. And he's probably also going to judge those people who are plundering. Salvation in the mindset of 100% of the people before Jesus was born. Salvation in 100% of the minds of the people back then meant this. God will kill my enemies. And God will lift me up. That's what salvation meant. For every single one of those people. And so when the angel says to Joseph, he will save his people, Joseph is like, yes, this is the Messiah. Yes, this is the one who has promised to come. He's going to save his people from their accusers. He's going to save the people from those who plunder them. He's going to save the people from the Romans. He's going to save the people from their enemies. No. The angel changed the last word. He will save his people, from their sins. Joseph's like, I don't want you to save people from their sins. I want you to get them. If people have sinned, I want you to get them, God. But he says, no, I'm going to save them from their sins. All that stuff would be brand new. And Joseph would be like, wait a minute. God, I know what you've said You've said saving words like this, and I know your ways. You don't save people from their sins. God, I know you, and none of this stuff seems like you. But he heard an angel tell him that, and so he might be inclined to follow it. What is Joseph going to do? That's the big question. But before we get the answer, Matthew takes us on a tiny detour into the Old Testament to do something that I find utterly fascinating. It says this in Matthew chapter 1, 22, the next verse. It says, all this took took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You've heard this before. It's a famous Christmas passage. You've heard it all the time. The thing that you need to know, though, and this is so important, is that literally 0% of the people, before Matthew said these words, 0% of the people thought that passage was about the Messiah. No one thought Isaiah 7 was about the Messiah. In fact, let me show you. Let's go back to Isaiah 7. I'm going to put a selection of Isaiah 7's verses up on the screen, and I want to show you that no one would ever have thought that Isaiah 7 was talking about the Messiah. Here it is. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Okay, so Ahaz is the king of Judah. That's the southern kingdom. And now the northern kingdom and a different kingdom are coming against Jerusalem. And they want to fight against it. So Ahaz is probably freaked out. But so far, they haven't yet overpowered it. And then Isaiah gets a word from God. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Sheer Jeshub, 
to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Very specific instructions God is giving. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Don't be afraid of these people. They're just stumps of firewood. In other words, God, uh, God's going to burn them up because they're just stumps. They've got nothing going for them. God's going to take care of them. Don't be afraid of them, but keep reading. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. I want to prove to you, Ahaz, that I'm going to do this thing for you. I'm going to protect you. I want to prove to you that I'm going to save you from your enemies. And Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said in frustration, he says, hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? In other words, I'm going to give you a sign. You don't want a sign. Oh, I can't put up with you people. You irritate me. But then he keeps going. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Hang on there just for a second. What does it mean to eat curds and honey? Well, curds are made from milk. And so when you're eating something that's made from milk and honey, you are literally living in the land of milk and honey. And if you are living in the land of milk and honey, you are living in the promised land. And if you are living in the promised land, you are living in God's promise. And so Isaiah is like, God's promise is not changing. In fact, you will see this child is going to, before he's even old enough to know right from wrong, he's going to be eating milk and honey, and it's going to be a symbol of the promised land on God's people. The promise is still there. Stop worrying. But keep reading. Before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So your enemies, I will save you from your enemies. They're going to be gone. I'm going to wipe them out. They will be laid waste. And this child will be the sign because it's all going to happen before he's old enough to know the right from wrong, maybe 10 years old. So in other words, between now and 10 years from now, all your enemies are going to be gone. But keep reading. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. The two kings you're afraid of, I'm going to wipe them out. But I'm going to bring a different one. I'm going to bring the king of Assyria and he will succeed against you. Read the rest of Isaiah chapter 7 and it's a passage of judgment. God is bringing judgment against his people for all of their sins and he's going to do it not with these other two weak kings. He's going to do it with the king of Assyria. And so you have to get this picture in your mind. First of all, the only reason the prophecy makes any sense at all is if a child is born while Ahaz is still alive and while the other kings are still attacking. Meaning we've got like nine months to get this thing happening. A child has to be born then in order for that prophecy to make any sense whatsoever. Then that child has to grow up in Israel and be literally eating something of the produce of Israel so that then the other kings, when they're wiped out, everybody will know, oh, hey, check it out. The prophecy came true. God is really with us. Emmanuel. The only way that prophecy makes any sense whatsoever is if it is fulfilled within the next few years. And it was. If you read Isaiah 9, which is another Christmas passage, we use it for Christmas all the time, but in Isaiah 9, we're told about this prophecy actually being fulfilled. It actually happened. And we also know that those enemy kings were destroyed. But there's another thing. This Emmanuel kid, he's also a symbol of one set of kings being destroyed and another set of kings coming in in judgment. See, having God with you isn't always comfortable. Having Emmanuel isn't always roses. 
Because Emmanuel, God with us, can mean he's going to defeat my enemies. It can also mean he's going to defeat me. That's why no one saw Isaiah 7 as a prophecy about the Messiah. That's why no one thought that the virgin meant Mary. Oh, and there's one other thing. That passage in Isaiah, the ancient Hebrew word for virgin simply meant young woman. It didn't mean a woman who's never slept with a man. It just meant young woman. Because of translation issues and how the rest of the world has operated, we translate it today as virgin, but it really just meant young woman. And so it says the young woman or a young woman will conceive and have a child and, and bear a child and you'll call him Emmanuel. It just makes perfect sense. It's the way it's always worked. No one, no one, no one would have thought Isaiah 7 was a prophecy about the Messiah. No one would have thought Isaiah 7 was the prophecy about a miraculous virgin conception. No one would have expected any of those things. It's only Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, years after Jesus' ministry, who's like, Isaiah, that has two meanings. I'm going to write that one down. But Joseph? Now for Joseph, all of that would have been completely, completely unexpected. So what's he going to do? Well, let's finish it up. Let's see what Joseph does. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. There are a couple things Joseph does here. Number one, he takes Mary home as his wife. And number two, he doesn't sleep with her. Both of those things are interesting. The first one is the easier one. He takes her home to be his wife. But do you realize if he took Mary home to be his wife immediately and consummated the marriage with her, all of the shame and disgrace on Joseph's head might have disappeared. Because if he marries her immediately and then she's found to be pregnant in a couple months, If the town finds out she's pregnant, no big deal. It's just like, hey, Joseph, he works quickly, you know? That's no big deal. But by choosing to not consummate and somehow telling people that he is not consummating it, because how else does anyone know it to write it down? Somehow Mary and Joseph make this commitment public enough that people around them know it. He is not consummating it. In other words, he is now defending her story. That whole story of the angel thing, the story that no one would believe, the story that she's miraculously pregnant, that story, the story that no one would have believed back then, he's standing by it. He's protecting her and her story. And as a result, all of the shame and disgrace that would fall on her is falling on him doubly because he's the man in the situation and he's the one who should know better. He's the one who should be operating. And so Joseph decides he is going to take all of that shame, all of that disgrace, all of that pain, and he is going to bear it on his own shoulders. Because after all, maybe sometimes God really does have one person pay for the sins of another. And he's willing to stand in that place. Joseph took her home to be his wife he did not sleep with her and braced the disgrace. So there are a number of things that as I look at this story, I think about, and I, I want us to carry home with us. And a couple of them might be more important than the others. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. The last one I get to is the most important one of them all, I think. But, but I, need to, I need to take you on a very short journey to get there. It, it's a journey of questions. And the first question I want to ask you to ask yourself is this one. Can I hold my ideas about God lightly? Can I hold my ideas about God lightly? You see, Christians, Christians are just like every other religious group in the world when it comes to this thing. We think we understand God. 
We think we understand what God said. We think we understand how God works. God, this is what you said. I have read it. I'm a perfect understander of things of God. And therefore, when I read your word, I totally understand what it means. And therefore, God, I know you better than you know yourself because I've read your word. And God, I have paid attention to all the things that you have done throughout all of human history and all the thoughts that you've ever had. And I know everything that you have ever done and all the things that you would do. And so God, I understand your ways. God, I understand your word and I understand your ways. And even though we would never say it so arrogantly out loud, we feel it all the time and we are not alone. Religious people throughout the centuries have felt this level of confidence about their own understanding of God. It's the same way people feel their own confidence about some other opinion they have in this world. They feel confident about an election. They feel confident about a car brand. They feel confident about a particular kind of food or a particular way of preparing a particular kind of food. We have confidence in all kinds of things. But religious people, Christians too, we have felt just as much confidence about our own understanding of God, his word, and his ways. And I want to ask you to ask yourself this question. Write it down if you have to. Can I, am I able to hold my ideas of God lightly? And to say, God, one of these days, you might do something that's unexpected to me, and I will accept it. God, one of these days, you might let a new thing show up in this world, and I will be okay with that. God, one of these days, you might challenge me to understand your word a little differently than I used to, and I will change my mind. What would it have been like if Joseph had kept the law? A law-keeping Joseph would have taken Mary to the town gates and publicly humiliated her before initiating the throwing of rocks. I am so grateful. I'm so grateful for a man like Joseph who was willing to break the law because God had opened his eyes up to something new. I'm not saying Mary deserved to die. What she actually had going on in her was not in the law. But from Joseph's perspective, it would have been. Can I hold my ideas about God lightly? You know, the history of Christianity is a history filled with people failing at this. The earliest phases of Christianity, early, early on in the days of Christianity, it was decided that uh, they were going to put one person in charge of the entire church. They called him the Pope. The problem was there were different groups of Christians inside the world of Christianity. And one group of Christians thought it was inappropriate to build statues of things because, of course, the law of God had said you should not build any statues of things. And so one group of people were really upset at the other group of people because they built statues. They built statues of saints, and they wanted to remember the saints, commemorate the saints, saints, and so they built statues to commemorate them. But this group over here, they knew that building a graven image was wrong, but a painted image was probably okay. And so what they did is they painted two-dimensional images of saints, and they practiced remembering the saints and gazing at the saints and thinking about the saints and worshiping God by thinking about the saints. And these people over here were like, what are you nuts? You're gazing at a picture thinking that that picture is going to give you any sort of spiritual benefit? We just, have the, we just have the statues to remember them, and you're like using the paintings for something? What is happening here? This was called the iconoclastic controversy because one group wanted to keep the icons, and another group wanted to keep the other kind of icons because an icon is a thing that represents another thing. And they just couldn't agree with each other, and so they started killing each other until they simply decided, maybe we can have two popes. 
And so they had one pope over the statue church and another leader, I don't think they ever called him a pope, another leader over the two-dimensional church. Years later, men in Europe decided that it was inappropriate for us to keep the Bible only in Latin and that people should be able to read it. And so they started translating the Bible into the language of the normal people. And as soon as the people in the church found out that someone was doing something new, they decided, well, we have to kill them. And so all of those Bible translators lost their lives for translating the Bible into the language of the people. Years later, a whole group of people in this country decided that the Bible made it abundantly clear that God had ordained slavery for the separation of the races. And some people said, no, we don't think he did. And they disagreed so vigorously over whether the Bible allowed slavery or not that they killed each other. Listen, I, I need to say the obvious thing. Those people who are trying to conserve the past probably understand the past wrong, probably understand the present wrong, and probably understand the direction God is moving us wrong. But those people who are trying to force the future probably also misunderstand the past and the present and the future. Because if we're honest with each other, we're all pretty dumb. We're all pretty messed up. We all have the wrong idea. And so I need to hold my ideas of God lightly. Now, I'm not saying throw out the Bible, don't pay attention to the Bible. No, read it. Read it better. Understand it better. But literally every moment you read it, say to yourself, okay, there's probably something I'm getting wrong about this. There's probably something else I need to hear. There's probably something new that God needs to bring into my life for me to better understand this. Every single time someone tells you something about the Bible, in your mind, you're like, hmm, it probably is right, might be right, might be wrong. Going to hold that one lightly. Going to wait until God helps me get more because I just simply am not going to trust myself in all of this. Hold it lightly. Question number two. Am I merely trying to conserve the past? And I know that there's a big debate these days about conservatism versus progressivism. And I already said that there's a problem with some people trying to conserve the past, but there's an equal problem with people trying to force the future. I'm not going to get into that. What I'm trying to say is for you and for me, there's something in my past that was more comfortable. There was a thing that I learned about God that was more comfortable. There was a thing I read in the Word that was more comfortable. And when I am challenged with something new, I have to ask myself the question, am I feeling bad about the new because I'm just trying to hold on to something old? Am I trying to conserve this old way of thinking? Am I trying to save this old way of thinking? Am I even trying to promote among other people my own old way of thinking so that they can join me in my old way of thinking and I can ignore the new way of thinking? God might be doing something new, but what would happen if Joseph was a conservative? What would have happened if he was the wrong sort of progressive? Either way, we're all in trouble. But there's one difference between Joseph and anything else that's going on in today's world. And you know what that difference is. He heard an angel. An angel showed up to him. And he's like, no, I'm going to give you the new thing. I'm going to tell you the new thing. Here it is. New thing, Mary has a miracle going on inside of her. That's the new thing, okay? An angel said it, so Joseph had more reason to believe it. Now, if you come and tell me that an angel spoke to you, I'm going to doubt it. I'm not going to believe you. I'm probably going to ignore what you say, unless there's some additional proof just because, you know, I'm super crazy skeptical like that. But Joseph heard from the angel directly, and it changes the rest of the world, and we're following that. But guess what? Even though I haven't heard the angel tell me about the new things, guess what? This is so cool. I have something better. You know why? Because all Joseph had was an angel, but I have the words of Jesus himself. And so I'm going to give you the easy out, which is also the more difficult path. You ready? The easy out to this whole frustration is also the more difficult path. Pay attention to Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus. 
and what he said. In fact, I'll phrase it this way. I think all of us need to embrace this as a commitment. I will hold on to the promise of God and welcome the changes as outlined by Jesus. I'm going to let Jesus form the parameters and the filter through which I see everything else. And if something new shows up, I'm going to take the new thing, put it next to Jesus, and say, how does the new thing relate to who Jesus is? And if the new thing meshes with Jesus, I'm going with the new thing. And if the new thing doesn't mesh with Jesus, I'm just going to stay with Jesus. But my own ideas about God's word and his ways, that's all, it's easily flawed. But I have the words in red ink in my Bible. And I'm going to filter everything through who he is. Remember, Jesus himself said this. You've heard it said, but I say to you. If Jesus is the one who identifies himself as the filter of the old, then I'm going to keep him as the filter of my old too. And I'm going to let him be the filter of all the new. And as a result, I'm going to make sure that I'm a person who can hang on to the promise and go through the process of the new because I have the parameters laid out for me through Jesus, the one who came at Christmas, the one who created all this havoc at Christmas, but the one who is the answer for the future. And so I want us to be the kind of people who firmly embrace that. And I want to invite you to step into that. We're going to have communion here. We're going to take a a pause, a break, just a quiet space in the room, and I'm going to ask you to spend some time in reflection and be like, God, am I inappropriately trying to just hang on to something from the past, or am I willing to move into the future while holding on to your promise? And God, do I have the right filter set up in my life so that I understand how to better understand the past and also how to move in towards the future? Am I truly following Jesus? And however you answer those two questions, I want you to be able to end by saying, so today, God, I renew my commitment to follow Jesus. I renew my commitment to put my life in his hands. And then come forward and share communion with us. Eat the bread as a symbol of taking the body of Christ into you. Drink the grape juice as a symbol of taking the blood of Christ into you. And receive the transformative work of Jesus in gratitude for the fact that he is making all things new, even the things I don't want to be new. But it's okay. Don't be afraid because he's got this. The promise is still secure. The filter is clear. So go ahead and step through it. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you, and his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.